This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. Week two of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky vows not to surrender. Our resistance for almost two weeks has shown you that we will not surrender because this is our home. It is our families and children. We will fight until we can win back our land, until we get answers for our killed people, for our killed children. CBS Radio's Steve Futterman is on the Ukraine border. I sometimes talk to people when they walked across, 30 seconds after they walked across, and they're elated. There's this strange connection between the elation, the euphoria, and the sadness. They're so glad to be here, safe in a country they feel safe in, but they are so sad they were forced to leave their own country. Ahead on America Change Forever, we'll speak with Jonathan Weiner, a former State Department official who led numerous delegations to Russia during the Clinton administration. I came up with the idea of the Magnitsky Act, which Putin absolutely hated, which allowed for the sanctioning of corrupt Russian officials who were involved in the murder of my client Bill Browder's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, for whom the act was named, and there's now acts named for him all over the world. Also, Sean Planky, a former National Security Council cyber official, We'll discuss the latest threats outlined by U.S. intelligence chiefs. The report um, continues to make clear that China is the most sophisticated and pervasive uh, cyber threat to the United States and actually says in the reporting that China could affect U.S. critical infrastructure, specifically in the railways and oil and gas sectors of the United States. First, though, the race to feed refugees fleeing the Russian invasion along the border of Ukraine and Poland. Chef Eric Bruner Yang was interviewed by Billy Shore, the founder of the anti-hunger organization Share Our Strength. Shore contacted Bruner Yang at the border where the chef and other volunteers for World Central Kitchen are feeding over 100,000 refugees per week. Uh, Eric, t- tell, tell us exactly where you are, as, as close as you can tell us to where you are. Um, so for the last week, I've been uh, kind of at this border stop, Miyaka. It is probably one of the biggest border stops in terms of refugees traveling through both countries um, in terms in regards to all the border stops. Sorry, I'm not very well spoken today. I'm quite tired. Uh, I bet you are. How close to the border are you? Uh, we're basically right there. So it's like the immigration checkpoint center. Um, there's uh, two entrances. So you're right on the border. Yeah. One entrance is for vehicles and one entrance for pedestrian traffic. Um, I've been here for about a week volunteering for World Central Kitchen. It's been um, pretty intense. I mean, just from where you've been, uh, and I'm, I don't know if there's a difference between day and night, you can tell us, but from where you've been working, and I know you've been preparing food and feeding people, just what's it look like? Paint a, paint a word picture for us. Uh, what do you see and who are the folks that are coming over? Um, it's hard to describe or talk about because I still really haven't had the time to decompress it or process it, but um, World Central Kitchen has basically been here since the very beginning. Um, at this point, they have stations uh, assisting people almost at every border stop um, along multiple countries, and they've currently started providing meals inside of Ukraine as well. And it's quite an impressive operation. You know, I only I came to just be as helpful as possible. You guys know me pretty well. Um, you know, I'm super resourceful. I uh, work well under weird circumstances. <laughs> Um, and, and just try to make things happen. Right. And I think that's, what's been great about this experience is whatever skill set I have, uh, was able to be put into use just to provide a little sense of comfort, even if it's just for a couple minutes, um, to people that are going through an extreme experience. Now, my wife's family is Cambodian, you know, they, um, suffered through the Khmer Rouge and are refugees themselves. And, 
um, I feel like that's why I had this kind of like calling to go and volunteer. And yeah, the border is, 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 was probably once this kind of like cute little country town. Um, and, you know, the first couple of days we were there, we're seeing 20,000 refugees a day. Uh, today we'll probably hit 35,000, 36,000 refugees. In one day? In one day, just from this one stop. Oh my gosh. Um, roughly about, roughly about a hundred thousand to 120,000 refugees coming through just the Poland side of the border. So we're not even talking about Moldova or Romania or Hungary. And I think to date they're saying 1.5 million. So we're really seeing about 10% of that on a daily basis through the Poland side. And is everybody hungry? Does everybody that comes across need to be fed? They've come a long way. Well, I think as World Central Kitchen, Kitchen's foot, footprint has expanded, yes, people are hungry. But it was one thing that really kind of touched me yesterday was, you know, we were serving meals. This is probably like one in the morning. It's below freezing, um, white um, snow that's not sticking. So everything's like a little bit damp and super cold. Um, and she had uh, multiple World Central Kitchen meals. So through her whole journey, she had been receiving meals from World Central Kitchen as she traveled from her town that she was from in Ukraine. And here on this border of Poland, we were trying to give her another meal before she was getting on the bus. And I think that um, was really the type of progress we saw happen there over the last five or six days. Uh, and I'm told that um, that um, an enormous number of uh, Poles have welcomed people into their homes, that the Poland has actually done an amazing job so far of absorbing the refugees. Do you have any sense of that? A billion refugees into one country does requires a lot of patience you know it's a it's a massive um change to a lot of people um and i think the polish people in that particular town were super nice um and every polish person i've met has been super nice it's a beautiful country and they're take, they're taking great care of their neighbors you know i'm just grateful that i was useful and was able to, able to provide some comfort to people how much sleep have you had in the last week uh uh, it's 11 o'clock here. My flight's at, gotta leave for the airport at four. So I'll take like a three hour nap and then get on the plane. Probably like three, four hours a day, max. Wow. Are you ever going to be able to not do this? We'll see what it's like when I get home. If, if it wasn't too hard on everybody. Your family's going to be happy to see you. Uh, I'll let you go in just one minute. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned that people were coming from all over the world, driving from Sweden. Uh, any sense of how many chefs or restaurant colleagues like yourself from america have come um no i was like once i was assigned my task i was very much just like that was my focus i had i met a, a guy named grant who picked me up from the airport um and he his wife followed me on instagram and they were living in vienna and you know he gave me a ride and and, and drove me down to the border and decided to stay and, and he's actually still staying and volunteering. <laughs> he was like, I'm going to stay a couple extra days because I need to train the new volunteers. So they know our systems um, of what we're doing at this particular location. And I thought that was just really cool. And then another guy that follows me on Instagram, he has a coffee shop in Portland. He flew all the way over and helped me out. And it was like three, we're like the three amigos kind of <laughs> running our little area for a couple of days. And, we had never met and we got along really well. And, and, and that, those were just people that reached out to me who found out that I was going. Incredible. Um, through, and really through the whole Instagram. time there was just the three of us. We, yeah. We, through Instagram, we woke up together at the same hotel. We drove every morning, worked 20 hours, drove back. And that was really, you know, we'd see world central kitchen people come and drop us more food and we're meeting all these different people from around the world. But really it was just the three of us. Um, kind of having this experience working as a team to to just uh, maintain what was going on there. This project, this little side project that we started at this at this border for World Central Kitchen to up the feeding capacity. Wow, really incredible. Well, Eric, uh, all of us who know you are so proud of you and so grateful uh, that you stepped up to do this. It uh, it's really inspiring in so many ways, and I'm glad you're safe. I hope you get home safe, and uh, just on behalf of all of us, it share our strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, thanks to you and World Central Kitchen for this absolutely extraordinary and vital work. Yeah, and it's, it's my pleasure, and um, uh, thanks for having me. Today, two million refugees have passed through the checkpoints on the border, 
seeking refuge from the Russian invasion that is claiming civilian lives. To hear more of Chef Eric Brunner Yang's eyewitness account of the refugees fleeing Ukraine, you can go to adpassionandstir.com slash podcasts or search for Add Passion and Stir on your favorite podcast app. Jonathan Weiner is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement. He has worked on U.S.-Russia issues for decades. Is it true that at the Helsinki summit, where President Trump met with Russian President Vladimir Putin, is it true that... Putin asked President Trump for permission to interrogate you about your reporting on Russia. Yes, that's true. I read about it in the Russian press. What do you think Putin wanted to get out of you? Well, I had several different roles in relationship to Russia. I've been involved in the negotiation, the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, and our decision not to enter into an extradition treaty with Russia because we couldn't trust the Russian legal system back when I was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. And then when I got out of the government, um, I came up with the idea of the Magnitsky Act, which Putin absolutely hated, which allowed for the sanctioning of corrupt Russian officials who were involved in the murder of my client Bill Browder's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, for whom the act was named. And there's now acts named for him all over the world. And that's been globalized since as a human rights instrument. It's a sanctions law. You can sanction people for being corrupt and killing people or otherwise uh, violating their human rights as part of that corruption. And he was to say Russia, uh, the Russian state and Putin hate that law a great deal. So he wanted, I think, to interrogate me about that. And then finally, when I was at the State Department during the Obama years, um, British former spy Christopher Steele um, offered me what became 110 or 120 uh, reports on Russia that he prepared for a private client. And I brought them to the Russia experts at the State Department, said, do you want these? They were basically intelligence reporting on developments in Russia. Do you want them? And they uh, looked at them and said, yes, these are valuable. Keep them coming. And of course, bit by bit, under uh, great pressure, those um, reports were eventually released to Republicans in Congress who then published them, making it possible for Putin and the Russians to get their contents. Um, but at the time, they were quite valuable to supplement all the other sources the U.S. government had uh, to assess what was going on in Russia. But they weren't about U.S. politics, and they certainly didn't mention anything about Mr. Trump. But they were intelligence reports, and so I suspect Mr. Putin wanted to talk to me about that, too. Well, let's just delve into that a little bit deeper. Uh, we're kind of getting off. Uh, I wanted to discuss Ukraine and what's going on there. We'll get to that. Well, they were about Ukraine. They were, a lot of them were about Ukraine and Russia's relationship with Ukraine. Interesting. Interesting. And, and just to fill in our listeners, um, Mr. Steele was obviously involved in the question of whether there was compromise on former President Trump before he was elected, and whether the Russians had something on him that could influence his decision-making as president. But uh, since that dossier was made public, there are a lot of people who've discredited Mr. Steele and the contents of that dossier. But as someone who has looked into some aspects of that dossier, some of them check out. Well, of course. Some of them are not provable, not disproven. Um, but not proved out with evidence either. It's intelligence reporting. I mean, intelligence is not evidence. It's a different field. It's what people are saying is true at the time you're reporting it. All I can say is that uh, I provided the information that he provided me to the Russia experts at the State Department to use as they thought best, to assess as they thought best, because they asked me to keep them coming. And uh, that was their judgment. And none of that was about Mr. Trump. Uh, or American politics. And this was over several years. So they were, from my point of view, um, validated by the people who were using them and provided um, uh, appropriate value to the United States government. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about that. On the dossier itself, 
when you have two governments working very, very hard to discredit someone or something, uh, they're going to be able to do that. Uh, there's an old saying from Stalin's time, you find me the man and I'll find you the crime. And what it means, of course, is that if you decide to go after somebody, you can find something wrong with almost anybody. Um, and intelligence reporting is never perfect. But was Mr. Steele right that there were influence operations? Sure. Was he right that there was constant contact between the Trump campaign and lots and lots of Russians? Sure. After all, Paul Manafort, the campaign manager, who's identified in the dossiers correctly as the Trump campaign manager, was indeed sharing polling data through Konstantin Kalinnik, the Senate Intelligence Committee and others, I believe, identified as a Russian uh, agent of some kind uh, from the Trump campaign. So um, while every fact, and it may not have been proven, the gist of the core of it uh, seems to me still unassailable. But, of course, unassailable doesn't mean that there aren't people who are going to criticize it, particularly people whose interests it is for it not to be taken seriously, like the Russian government and Donald Trump. Yeah, well, we know um, about Vladimir Putin is he tends to lie. <laughs> uh, just, you know, on the face of what he said about Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine and what led up to his invasion of Ukraine. And then, you know, there have been obviously uh, statements that he and his representatives have made throughout history. Uh, especially, especially recent history on Russian operations overseas in Europe, uh, etc. Et so, so what you see happening now with Vladimir Putin? Should America have? Should American leadership have expected this kind of behavior at some point? He's always seemed to have this. Seemed to have had this chip on his shoulder about Ukraine. Yes, we, we, uh, we certainly should have expected. I think we did expect it at some level. And that's why there have been efforts for years uh, to get Ukraine um, some military equipment, some ability to defend itself, which, of course, Mr. Trump's first impeachment was all about his holding that up in an effort to force uh, Zelensky uh, to give, provide dirt on Joe Biden and Hunter Biden as a condition for the assistance, which he was impeached over. So it's been a longstanding under, um, appreciation. Uh, President Putin considered the collapse of the Soviet Union to be the great catastrophe and has been intent on reshifting power ever since then to find a way to bring it back in some shape or form. And how, uh, the, the shape and form has changed over the years, but it's been pretty consistent. And this is very similar in this respect to European history in the early 20th century, where 19, um, after 1918, when Germany lost World War I, there was the Versailles Treaty. And the core of what Adolf Hitler was trying to do, um, leaving the genocide apart completely, let's separate that part out for a moment, was to resurrect what had been part of Germany before and bring all German speakers together. And that's what caused World War II. And this is very, very similar. It's, it's called revanchism, it's, it's the political idea. And it's about bringing back the old empire, the old land that you had before, and restoring it. And that's the core idea. So where does this end? We've heard U.S. intelligence officials, we've heard government officials here in the U.S. say that this... This could take months, could take longer than that. Where do you think this ends? There's no place now for Mr. Putin to go. He's made it clear that he intends to install his own government in Ukraine. He's in the process killed a lot of Ukrainians, will kill a lot more, and created millions of refugees. He's scared the hell out of Poland and the Balts. When I was working European issues, I remember going to Poland and being told by an old communist leader in Poland that the one thing they fear more than Germany was Russia. And they wanted the United States and Poland as much as possible because they never again wanted to have what happened to them for 200 years, which is occupation uh, by France, Germany, Austria, and mainly Russia. And so baked into the core 
the DNA of Poland, for example, and of the Baltic states, is the fear of Russia and territorial expansion and uh, invasion. And so we're in a situation that's uh, fraught with military tension for the foreseeable future as a result of the creation of a new military border, potentially, between Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, directed by Putin, and, and NATO on the other side. And uh, that's not a stable situation, and it's particularly unstable because Russia will be experiencing tremendous suffering. What did uh, the Russian people get under Putin? They got consumer products. They got the right to travel. They got the ability to uh, vacation in nice places like Greece. Um, all of that now is fundamentally being taken away uh, through sanctions and through isolation. Now, instead, they have um, uh, their young men coming back in, um, in uh, tins. Um, um, people, we call it body bags, but they do it actually in what sometimes are called zinc tins. And that's not going to be popular. Uh, the oligarchs, the people who did the best under the Putin government, are losing not only their yachts and their planes, but their ability to roam free and to do deals. It's not good for them. Uh, the Russian military is being tested in ways that has never been tested and is expected to win a war, which is going to be extraordinarily difficult to win. It's difficult to win any occupation. It's hard to see what they get out of it. So you look at all the different components of Russian society, of people who didn't say, yeah, I want a war, and still have uh, already have, gra have grave doubts about it in some part of the population. And that's likely to increase despite the propaganda. And they're not going to be getting anything good out of it. They're only going to be getting bad things out of it. So it's probably not sustainable. And his time is probably not going to be long. Well, what do you what do you mean by that? It doesn't seem like there's any sort of sustained opposition in Russia that could topple this government. Well, I've been talking to people who talk to senior people in the Kremlin frequently and have for years. Um, and they didn't think this war would take place. And the reason they didn't think their war would take place is because they were talking to Putin's senior people. And the people around him did not want the war, for the most part. You saw that extraordinary meeting of his National Security Council just before the war began. You could feel the tension in the room. You could see it. You could see his... Well, how, how could you feel it? I mean, he was sitting like miles away from his brain trust there. He had this big conference room table, and he was a mile away from everybody else. There, It seems like there's something going on with him. There are reports that he's concerned about his health, but um, there are many aspects of these meetings that just appear to be, you know, something's off. When you have your foreign intelligence head chief stammering at the table while the cameras are on and saying, we're going to um, rec recognize the new government um, and then have Putin uh, cut him off and say, that's not announced yet. Um, it's a little uh, tense. It's not the way it's supposed, things are supposed to be orchestrated. Now, the symbolic difference, uh, distance, the symbolic distance is also a symbolic difference in status. There was a wonderful article about Putin's psychology that came out recently, written by a psychologist who said he used to feel uh, um, um, resentment at people who were stronger than him. And then he felt anger against his equals. And now he feels mostly contempt because no one is his equal anymore. And the contempt is internal as well as external. And so one of the ways of seeing this war is, is as an expression of his contempt for the West, a contempt for the Ukrainians, and a contempt for any opposition he might have within his country. Um, in terms of his health, uh, he used to be uh, quite a bit more slender. He's got uh, large cheeks now. Uh, doctors tell me that these kinds of cheeks can be the expression of cortisone, um, uh, steroid treatment. I'm not a physician. I don't know whether that's the case. But the, the vast distance between him and other people in his meetings is certainly odd. And that meeting uh, right before the war began was odd, and their behavior was odd. Um, so he's, he seems to be isolated. 
And the people I know who are the my, my best Russia experts pretty much unified on the point that he did not have tremendous support from this, from a range of people, even those close to him. A couple, yes, but a lot, no. And it's hard to find who benefits from it. And as conditions deteriorate over time, and as the occupation doesn't go well over time, it's hard to see a way out for him. There were predictions, mostly coming from Moscow, that this invasion would take days. Why do you think it's gotten bogged down? Is the Russian military not what it's uh, perceived to be? Well, the invasion of Kazakhstan, as it were, or the rescue, when there was a populist demonstration in January, it was a very fast operation, you know, lightning fast. The Georgia operation a decade ago, more than a decade, did happen quickly. They had another one next to Moldova, Transdenister. Um, Crimea went very fast. Uh, sometimes you can do very, very well with Blitzkrieg, but Ukraine's a big country, for more than 40 million people, and they are resisting, and they do have some arms, and it's a lot of space to move through. And they also, as, as near as we can tell from the reporting, weren't told ahead of time, at least the ground troops, what it was they were going to do. They actually thought they were just going on and doing training, many of them. And so they had perhaps not been trained for this. And I think he expected that he would have a government of Quislings ready to go um, to support him, that Zelensky would flee, resistance would crumble, and then he would deal with the weak West, a new German chancellor who didn't know what he was doing like Merkel had, had known, a Boris Johnson who'd not been performing tremendously convincingly at home, an American president who was old and who fled Afghanistan in a way that didn't look very strong. And so person by country by country by country looked weak to him. I mentioned contempt. If you have contempt for everybody, you don't really expect they're going to be able to fight back very well. And if you've won for decades without huge consequences, why shouldn't you continue to keep winning? I mean, Hitler was a genius until he overreached. Napoleon was a genius until he overreached. Even Mussolini looked pretty good for a while. <laughs> of course, he was only able to carve out some territory in uh, Ethiopia and Libya. Uh, dictators tend to overreach after a while because nobody says no to them. And they, they lose the inhibition of having natural barriers. I wanted to go back and talk about sanctions. Um, as someone credited for conceiving of the Magnitsky rule. Um, what do you think about this, uh, all of these sanctions uh, imposed by the US, the Europeans? Um, are these finally the kinds of sanctions that could potentially bring Putin and Russia to its knees? They're designed to make people realize that their life has been made materially worse by the decisions that their leader, Vladimir Putin, made unilaterally. That nothing is better and everything is worse. And that the way out for them is to change their leadership. These were among the factors that eventually forced out Milosevic, for example, in the former Yugoslavia. There were sanctions there and the, the Serbs saw that nothing good was going to happen without a change in their leadership. Over time, sanctions can get people to reevaluate what is sustainable and what's survivable. The South Africa sanctions, which were derided at the time, caused the white supremacist government ultimately to give up and negotiate a black majority rule, rule based on one man, one vote throughout the country. A very, very big deal. Um, so people who deride sanctions and say, well, maybe the threat works, but they don't actually work. Well, they do work some. They have to be um, tailored to the situation. And in this case, because Europe is so concerned about whether not only Ukraine is going to be uh, taken over in this way, but what the implications are for the Balts 
and for Poland. Uh, I think that he's facing sanctions that no one's ever seen because they are so multilateral. There are so many countries participating in them. And even China. It's fascinating. Gino Raimondo, our uh, Secretary of Commerce, said yesterday, Chinese companies are going to have to watch out because if they help Russia circumvent sanctions, we could sanction them. And China is going to have to assess what's in its commercial interest, its economic security interest here as well. So you've got Australia, you've got Japan, you've got the EU, you've got Turkey as a member of NATO, this broad array of countries saying that they're not going to tolerate this, this massive collapse of the Russian economy. And uh, it's going to be hard to take for them. And that creates a real possibility of the kinds of pressures that could actually bring about regime change. Will it happen? I don't know. I hope it happens. The people I'm talking with think it will happen. Not this week, and not this month, but maybe in 2022. And that the man has no future outside the reckless attack he's just initiated, which will not succeed. Jonathan Weiner, thank you. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So this week, U.S. Intel chiefs, law enforcement chiefs on the Hill, talking to Senate Intel, House Intel, worldwide threats hearings. And these are hearings that uh, are typically held annually, except during the Trump administration, because he didn't like to hear, former President Trump didn't like to hear the reality of what was going on in the world. And so... Um, we didn't have some of these worldwide threats hearings, but we we heard from Intel chiefs this week, and not only did they talk about what was happening in Ukraine, but they also talked about China and the threat posed by China. So, Sean, what did they say about China and, and the danger to the U.S. that it poses? Uh, yes, they said they they continued to build on intelligence reporting that's gone back a few years now. And the unclassified worldwide threat assessment clearly talks about how China is the top technology threat to the United States. Interesting, uh, new in this year compared to previous years is they talked about how China is making significant accelerated investments in their military, specifically their Navy, growing out their, their naval capacity, as well as their space capacity. And then the report um, continues to make clear that China is the most sophisticated and pervasive uh, cyber threat to the United States and actually says in the reporting that China could affect U.S. critical infrastructure, specifically in the railways and oil and gas sectors of the United States. Well, what is your read on on what uh, was laid out in these hearings? I mean, we've known for years now that uh, China has been a prolific uh, hacker in terms of gathering information on U.S. government uh, organizations, think tanks. Um, They have been doing a lot of hacking. But according to the intelligence officials that I've spoken with over the years, Uh, What they do is different than the Russians. They hack to gather information, while the Russians gather to uh, hack to gather the kind of information that can be disseminated, uh, put out to weaken U.S. positions. Um, What do you think about how, or what is your take on how the Chinese use this, this information that they gather? Yes, those are interesting points. I think China in particular, due to the size and capacity of its um, cybersecurity, espionage and warfare capability, is is actually doing all of the above, right? They, um, they're definitely uh, seeking to gain technological advances, you know, targeting companies and government initiatives that are focused on um, semiconductors, uh, artificial intelligence, all, uh, all of the leading sectors that, that, that are growing the U.S. economy. But they're also doing, they are doing influence campaigns and they do seek to destabilize uh, the U.S. message and, and keep America focused on itself, on our, on our own internal issues, uh, foment that, that internal 
controversy uh, uh, over democracy, right? They, the more that they can make uh, the U.S. you know democratic experiment appear to not be valid, it it gives them more propaganda that they can then turn and use internally, and then in nations around China that reinforces the concept of their uh, autocratic um, authoritarian regime as um, as valid and as. as you know, Xi Jinping, the the leader in China, as the as the valid leader, the the uh, the future of of the country. Well, how does what's happening in Ukraine, in your view, figure into China's strategy as it relates to the U.S.? I think China appreciates what hap- what's going on in the Ukraine because it's a great distraction for them. Right? Any sort of conflict that that diverts your adversary and make no bones about it. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping has declared the U.S. his adversary, um, not his competitor, his adversary. And anything that makes the U.S. focus uh, and the world uh, specifically to focus on um, an area that's not them is powerful for them, right? It, it, it allows them to play at the edges, exploit the seams. Uh, recent uh, news articles have cited that Putin and Xi Jinping actually had met before uh, the Olympics, where Xi Jinping had asked Putin not to invade until after the Olympics. Um, they signed a treaty uh, to support each other. Um, there was reports last week that uh, China was buying Russian oil, despite you know sanctions, despite global cond- condemnation. Um, one can only imagine that there's probably other technological sharing uh, and discussions uh, going on between the two nations that that a reinforces uh, Putin's regime, but also allows Xi Jinping to continue unabated in growing uh, China's influence around the world. This worldwide threats report says that China has demonstrated capability and intent to advance its interest at the expense of the U.S. and its allies. I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, what I look for out of this report, uh, there's been continued discussion uh, I've seen in, in the U.S. political uh, environment where, where ha- half of the political environment talks about China as being a competitor um, whereas the other half talks about it being an adversary. And I wouldn't say that that's exclusive to one political party or another. Um, I've heard you know people on both parties saying both things. And I've actually heard uh, senior military leaders say you know both both statements. But I think that this you know nonpartisan uh, worldwide threat assessment from the DNI makes it pretty clear, that that we need to look at it. We as, a, as as America needs to look at China as the adversary and really understand this. This worldwide threat assessment exposes, uh, continues to expose um, the goals and intent uh, of of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that we need to you know take take notice of that and pay attention um, and and reinforce our strategy. Uh, appropriately to to uh, to counter that. Well, do you think the prior administration was doing that? President Trump uh, liked to tell people that nobody had been harder on China than he was. Uh, do you think the former administration was coming down on China and its you know as it relates to to its threats uh, to the U.S. Um, that this administration isn't uh, doing? So I I definitely do believe that um, the Trump administration was was hard on China um, and and pushed um, our foreign policy towards um, the CCP further than it had ever uh, been pushed before. You know, conversely, I also think China was the most aggressive they've ever been um, in seeking to you know push their uh, push their influence uh, around the world and and. And establish technological gains, establish um, economic gains around the world. Um, so, so I do think those uh, on both fronts, you know, we we as a nation uh, uh, pushed harder than we had before, and I think we need to continue to push harder. Um, there is still ground to be gained. Um, one of the one of the things that was always discussed uh, in um, 
foreign policy uh, and, and national security um, circles was right now there's multiple Chinese telecom companies that operate inside the United States with FCC licenses. So we know China has a, a pervasive surveillance state, and yet we're allowing their telecommunication companies to operate inside the United States as if they are commercial companies. We haven't we haven't pushed against the, uh, removing those FCC uh, licenses yet. Uh, we've discussed it, but no administration has has uh, has made it happen yet. Um, you have a social media thing such as TikTok, right? Uh, in the previous administration, it was pushed to ban TikTok um, and end it because it is known as a surveillance apparatus um, where the data used on TikTok gets um, sent back to to China, to servers in China, um, which by uh, China's 2017 national security law says all data must be made available to the government for surveillance. So there, the you know that was a that was a big push in the previous administration. This administration has not taken up that yet. So there's definitely ground to be gained still um, in keeping Americans safe and and, and pushing back on a um, you know an authoritarian regime that has directly stated that we are their adversary. Well, do you think the Biden administration has been too timid toward China? Or is it just that there are so many different uh, balls that they're having to juggle right now that they haven't had enough of an opportunity to focus on China? Um, well, I, I do think it's, uh, it is too timid of an approach. I, um, I do think we need to push harder as a nation. Absolutely. Um, I, I also do believe that there are, there is obviously a lot of things going on in the world. Um, but, by any indicators, I mean we've grown the size of the National Security Council. At the end of the last administration, was uh, I think it was about 170 people. It's back up into the mid 400s. So if we if we are going to bring those people in to to address those concerns, you know we should be able to handle it if we have that that sort of manpower and that sort of focus. I think we can do more. Let's get back to talking about um, China's capability. Uh, in terms of cyber attacks. There are a lot of people in the U.S. government who believe that China clearly has the capability to damage our critical infrastructure. Do you agree with that, Sean? I do. I do. Absolutely. So in what ways could they pose a threat? The worldwide threat assessment makes clear that China could do different things in our energy sector, oil and natural gas, and also transportation, which is um, you know specifically mentioned as as rail in the worldwide threat assessment. I'd I'd be concerned with those the maritime aspect, which we've seen is a key piece of our supply chain. Uh, if we remember over the past six months, we've had hundreds of ships lined off of, off the coast of. LALB, uh, the Port of Los Angeles in Long Beach. Um, but we've also seen uh, attacks such as uh, Colonial Pipeline, uh, ransomware attack. And we, if we all remember, Maersk was hit with the NotPetya incident years ago. These types of attacks, while those were not done by China, these types of attacks create a situation where it could impact our regional or at least national um, economic capacity. One that's already been facing supply chain issues just due to COVID itself and could face a more protracted issue if a cyber attack were able to slow down one sector or multiple sectors of the economy. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we all uh, saw what kind of damage a cyber attack could uh, wreak on our supply chain with Colonial Pipeline. I think that hit home for a lot of Americans. But as you noted, that was um, a cyber attack that was carried out by a group um, that at least the U.S. believes was uh, in Russia, protected by the Russian government, could not have done what it did without uh, some sort of knowledge by Russian officials. Um, So not only does China pose that kind of threat, but also 
uh, Russian-linked hackers, Russia-linked hackers pose that kind of danger. And so we're, we, it seems to me that we're, we're a target by a lot, you know, a target for a lot of different uh, state actors or hackers linked to states like Iran, even North Korea. Uh, we've seen activity there as well over the years. So, so I, I'd agree. I'd agree with uh, everything you said there. That that to me brings up one of the key things that we should be doing in defense, um, and and how do we protect ourselves? Right now, um, if we look at the sixteen critical infrastructure sectors across the United States, they're they're largely disconnected. We focus on a hey, could a cyber attack happen against, uh, let's say, the electric grid, and, it, and we don't necessarily connect. That oh that cyber attack could follow on and lead to a financial market loss, which could follow on to a uh, water infrastructure inability to get water out to American citizens, and the subsequent downstream effects of what a cyber attack could do. And one of the things I think we really as a nation um, should focus on is is the continuity of the economy. It's called. In the NDAA last year, the National uh, Defense uh, Authorization Act, there's a requirement for the U.S. government to conduct a continuity of the economy plan um, where you would recognize where a cyber attack caused an issue and the downstream effects so that you could enable a FEMA-like response, um, in it, whether it be in the national response framework or otherwise, but a, but a nationwide um, response that that galvanized uh, um, the governors, the National Guard, and the s- downstream sectors to to f- whether it be free up funds, provide alternative avenues, um, but just basically keep the economy going so that we could you know continue function as a nation um, outside of not just like critical life essentials, right? So. So we're talking about you know the the fluidity of the economy um, and the robustness of our economic power. I think that that really is that next step of what we as an, as a nation need to do to uh, to respond and keep America uh, moving forward. What's unfortunate is that with so many of these potential threats to the nation, we're always it seems. Uh, uh, late to the game, uh, we wait for something to happen before we can get Congress uh, or even law enforcement, in some cases, to react to the current threat. Um, but a lot of people, as as you noted, have, have seen these kinds of threats coming for some time. That is a absolutely true statement. Um, by nature, I think you know humans are are reactive, but. Specifically in cyber, we've had as early as the mid-90s, we had citizens testifying to Congress about um, cybersecurity issues regarding the internet and, and access to the, to the economy. We just haven't had that galvanizing event across the critical sectors, or at least we haven't recognized it as a cyber event that has forced the nation to to learn. If we remember, I mean, it was only a few years ago where a cabinet-level official, Homeland Security, and many members of Congress championed how they were Luddites and did not use email, although we all know that all of the people that worked for them were using email to uh, to communicate, right? We need to force that, uh, force that function where uh, we do acknowledge the essential uh, role that technology is playing and understand those downstream effects that could happen if technology was not available to us. That would be quite the nightmare for a lot of people out there. I know that even with this conflict or this invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. government, I think, um, has done a, a, a fairly thorough job of getting the word out to banks and other potential targets that, hey, you have to harden your systems, you have to be prepared. So perhaps uh, at least... Uh, at this moment in history, we are, as a country, sort of facing the reality, oh, this could happen. You might want to get, you know, check some money out of your bank just in case the bank gets hit. But it sounds like there are preparations 
at least related to the invasion of Ukraine, that people are taken to harden their systems and prepare for what could happen. If you remember um, CISA, you know, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, and Director Jen Easterly has put on a strong campaign to say shields up. They've done uh, a lot to be that government liaison to the people for cybersecurity where they have given people, hey, you can do these things to protect yourself. You should think about these courses of action. Here is what Russian-related threat activity looks like in cyberspace. I do believe, though, I think that next step is is bringing in the national response framework, the resiliency side of it, which would include entities such as FEMA and and finding a way to galvanize the uh, the state the state governors to take that action more to the people. I mean, in Washington, we often talk at the national level and we're very familiar with what's going on, but we do have to remember that not everybody is inside the beltway and has the ear to the ground that Washington pundits and uh, Capitol members do have. So the more we can do to get that word out to everyday Americans, I think, is continually important. Yeah, Sean, what you're saying reminds me of what uh, I had some cyber officials telling me in 2016 or post-2016 and the Russians uh, trying to breach uh, voter databases. They said, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I think based on what you're saying here, I think that's very much the case as it relates to uh, what the federal government is saying and what the states are doing as well. Sean Planky, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Change Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.